The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Lynette Calfani-Fox. Uh, she is the uh, money... I'm going to do it. Cox. i got to get that right. Sorry about that. We'll go that again. Three, two, one. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Lynette Calfani-Cox. She is the money coach and expert on all aspects of personal finance. Welcome to the show, Lynette. Hey, thank you for having me. Let's just start with your background a little bit. A lot of people know about you, but for those who don't, give us your background a little bit. Well, I guess one of my biggest claims to fame is something that I probably shouldn't be so proud of, which is the fact that uh, I had $100,000 in credit card debt back in 2001. And then, you know, I was doing a lot of overspending. Fortunately, I kind of saw the light. Uh, I took three years, paid off that uh, whopping amount of debt, uh, never missed a single payment. Then I wrote a book about it called Zero Debt, The Ultimate Guide to Financial Freedom, became a New York Times bestseller and uh, did very, very well. Uh, professionally, I really sort of cut my teeth as a financial journalist. I you know, was a Wall Street Journal reporter. I worked for CNBC and for the Associated Press and elsewhere. Uh, but really, for the past uh, decade plus, since 2003, I've been on my own uh, working as a money coach and teaching people about what it means to better manage their finances. So uh, my husband and I own a financial education uh, company called themoneycoach.net, LLC. And, uh, you know, we do seminars, workshops, media interviews like this one, and just sort of uh, write a lot as well to get the word out there about proper money management. And what kind of things can people find at your website, uh, askthemoneycoach.com? Well, askthemoneycoach.com is my free personal finance advice site, and they'll be able to get uh, a ton of stuff. Uh, Certainly over 1,300 articles, uh, 99% of which were written by me personally uh, on, you know, every category under the sun, whether it's, you know, budgeting and bankruptcy advice to credit advice, you know, stuff about entrepreneurship, investing, insurance, uh, retirement planning, uh, you know, a lot on college and more. Um, we post videos there. Um, we have uh, a lot of content in the form of Q&A because people do... Uh, ask me questions and we don't promise that I'm going to answer every single question or else I would literally be working all day just to answer questions. But um, certainly when we get, you know, unique questions, different questions, uh, really good questions, thoughtful questions that I think could also apply to a large number of, of readers or listeners, uh, then I, I go ahead and answer those queries um, because I always think that if one person took the time to write something, there's probably 10, 20, maybe even a hundred or more people, uh, who really are facing the same situation. Very good. All right, we're going to get into a lot of different topics of personal finance. And the first one is a new study that recently came out uh, from the Agriculture Department talking about the cost of raising uh, children 
Uh, so tell us briefly what that found and what the implications are of that for having children in the first place and realistically planning for how much they're going to cost. Well, I think for a lot of people, this agricultural department study was a big eye-opener. In a nutshell, it found that the cost of raising a child from birth up until age 18 was almost a quarter million dollars, uh, just over $245,000 to be exact. And some people thought, you know, holy smokes, you know, that's a ton of money. And there's no way the average American can afford that. Uh, Unfortunately, people are, in fact, spending that, and in some cases, a lot more, uh, because uh, those numbers don't even take into consideration things like college, which, of course, is another whopper of a financial expense all unto itself, uh, nor does um, that average number for the typical middle-class family in America take into consideration regional variations. For instance, in the Northeast, if you look at some of the data, um, Certainly, um, higher income families that live in the urban centers of the Northeast spend, according to this report, a lot more, uh, about $455,000 on, on raising a typical child. And so, uh, you know, certainly if you live in rural areas or in the Southwest or in the Midwest, the numbers come down significantly at just above $155,000 or so. But overall, this study found that there's three big areas that families are spending money on when it comes to raising their kids. First and foremost was housing. The second area was a lumped together category, which included child care and education. And then the third section was food, just basic food expenses to feed those mouths that you've brought into the world. Why is it more costly now than it has been in the past? You'd think food wouldn't be that much different than the past. Housing, I mean, they've got a house anyway, so why is that an additional cost? Education, you can understand, per kid, but why is it more costly now than it has been in the past? Yeah, I think that mainly the reason it's more costly, these numbers were up uh, just about 2% from the year-ago figures when they did this uh, same research. I think mainly it's because wages have been pretty flat and stagnant, and you really don't have a lot of um, economic growth on the income front that most households would have liked to have seen, certainly in in recent years, as we've sort of started to recover from the Great Recession. And then all the other expenses still do keep going up considerably. For example, healthcare, as we know, is a biggie, and this survey did take into consideration healthcare costs. Transportation, and it did, you know, take into account uh, those costs as well. Even things like cell phone bills, which, you know, parents are, are often paying for their, you know, teenage kids, et cetera, those kinds of things were tallied as well. So it's almost like a lot of things in personal finances where one or two or maybe even three expenses won't necessarily kill you, but it's the aggregate, it's the cumulative effect of so many bills bills upon bills upon bills piled on, you know, with everything else that families are trying to manage that make it feel overwhelming and in many cases unsustainable for a lot of average households. Do you think when people have kids, they anticipate this or they think about how much it's going to cost to have these kids? 
Absolutely not. <laughs> I, think that vast, I think that the vast majority of people, um, myself included, you know, I remember, you know, certainly with my third daughter, a, a welcome surprise, but a surprise nonetheless. <laughs> and no, I didn't think ahead to the, the you know, the costs and all that. Um, you know, obviously anybody who's a parent and I have three kids, right? My, my oldest daughter is uh, turning 17. My son is just about to be 14 in December and my little one uh, is eight. Uh, and you know, you, you appreciate the, the blessing that is a child. I mean, you really do, um, love obviously your children to death and, and, and I wouldn't trade mine for a thing. Um, but my first daughter was very, very planned. Um, I had been married for five years before I had her and it was a lot. We said, okay, let's get the house. And we did that first. You know, we really, um, were getting our ducks in a row. Uh, with my second child, my son, it was like, oh, okay, you know, second kid, great, kind of came along. It was like, you know, not trying to have a baby, not trying not to have a baby. <laughs> but then uh, certainly my my third child, my daughter, and, and I had gotten remarried, um, or I am now remarried, and I, you know, was divorced, and, uh, and Earl, who's my uh, agent and business manager and my partner and my husband, of course, uh, it was a surprise for us when I got pregnant. And um, but the short answer to your question is, you know, uh, married or not, you know, I think that for a lot of people, maybe that first time around or maybe those who are being, you know, conscientious about it and really thinking through everything, you you kind of do that. But I think, honestly, so many families I know when they and especially when they come to me with their money questions, they're shocked at how much everything costs. And they didn't necessarily plan long-term for, for a lot of things. And, and you know, uh, this certainly Jordan, that uh, as Americans, we're notoriously bad when it comes to doing long-term planning and to uh, saving money over the long haul for a whole bunch of stuff. You know, we're So is this something people should do? I mean, before you have a child, seriously, you should think about the cost of it and can you afford it? I mean, is that something you should kind of actually plan about? And, and if you say you can't afford it, not have the child? Um, you know, I think, yeah, you definitely should think ahead because it's one thing to, to sort of be pleasantly surprised and say, okay, we can swing this and, and, and you know, kind of it works out. But it's another thing to be struggling already, to be barely able to make ends meet and to have trouble keeping a roof over your head or putting food on the table, and then to bring another life into the world under those conditions, yeah, I think that's problematic because, frankly, you're going to set the next generation up for a, a, you know, a whole bunch of heartache. Now, am I suggesting that anybody who's poor or who's struggling or who's out of work should not have kids as a whole and just, you know, like basically that only the, the wealthy or middle class should be allowed to, to engage in child rearing? No, I'm not suggesting that at all. But I, I just say recognize the problems that are necessarily going to ri- arise and be realistic about what the limitations will be. So that if you say, you know what, I chose to have a third child or a first kid or, you know, and you, you know that you're already financially struggling, think about what the implications. If you, if you just say, oh, I really would love to send my kid to this private school, it's probably not going to happen. Yeah. So what are some of the things that parents can do? to control costs under these circumstances? Well, a couple things. Um, since housing is obviously the, the you know one of the biggies, um, I know that this is a very important area for a lot of parents, uh, not only because it, it, it pertains to 
you know, that whole, my home is my castle. It's part of the American dream, home ownership. But it also ties into that, that third area that I talked about in terms of what this uh, agricultural uh, department study found about education costs being part of what's driving higher the cost of raising a child. In many cases, if you, if you live in a good neighborhood, if you either rent or buy a home in a, in a good neighborhood, then you'll have a good school system for your kid as well. So on the housing front, I think that you have to be judicious. Don't overextend yourself. Um, if you want to be in a quote-unquote good neighborhood and you're buying, but you really feel like you're stretching, buy the cheapest house on the block that you can afford. Um, or consider a lot of, you know, other alternatives. Um, and, you know, some of this will be things like, okay, can you supplement? If you don't have the best public school in the world, can you supplement and give your kid, you know, a good start by exposing them to extracurricular activities or tutoring? Can you think about other things like um, your own uh, input in the school system? Maybe you can be an advocate and active parent to, if it's a school district that you feel is subpar, maybe you should get more involved there. Um, Maybe consider charter school options. Um, Some parents are going to consider homeschooling. So there are options. You don't have to go the private school route that I mentioned. Um, And trust me, been there, done that. My kids mm-hmm. are doing great in public school now. But for a while, I had them in private school. It was 20 grand a year for each one. At the time, I really couldn't afford it. So I made a strategic decision. And my kids are none the worse the way for it. My daughter is a National Merit Scholar. My, my kids are doing great. That's great. As far as saving for the future, and I mean, you mentioned that the quarter of a million is not even counting college. What are some of the best ways to save for college? Is the 529 your, your favorite option there? Um, I do love 529 plans. These, of course, are the state-sponsored college savings vehicles. Um, And I like them mainly because you can do a little bit over time. You can certainly get started early, which is one of my uh, biggest pieces of advice, which is, again, don't procrastinate. Start early, save often. Um, And that 529 plan isn't going to hurt your college financial aid eligibility mainly because the assets are technically in the parent's name, not in the kid's name. So, yeah, try the 529 plans. Start early. Do plan for some aid, but don't be unrealistic about it. Unfortunately, a lot of parents who have um, talented kids, and talent is, 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 you know, by definition sort of uh, subjective, but I'm talking about the parents who say, oh, my kid got a 2400 on their SAT, or my kid is a 4.0 student, or my kid is a star athlete, um, or my kid is a uh, musically gifted uh, child, etc. They just think, oh, great, full ride. You know, the college is going to pay for everything, tuition, fees, room and board, all in. We're going to be covered. Well, less than 1%, 0.3% to be exact, of all students actually get a full ride. Um, wow. That's a real wake-up call for people. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. So, and even if you're going to not get institutional aid, scholarship and grant money from the college that the student is attending, if you seek outside or private scholarships, only 7% of students win private scholarships. So be realistic about the type of aid or scholarship money that your family will get. And finally, know the difference between merit-based aid and need-based aid. Um, the merit-based aid is essentially going to cover those kids or contribute to the education of those kids who have those talents that I mentioned, athletics, music, um, high achievers academically, et cetera. Need-based aid is going to go to those families 
based on their income, their size, and the assets that they have or don't have. So you get, you have to know a lot about the, the financial aid system as well. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Lynette Kalfani-Cox. She's the money coach. Her website is askthemoneycoach.com. We'll be back after this. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CIO Talk Radio, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experiences with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive. This means better care for customers and improves the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. Engage with Andy Bush takes you inside the mind of a top global market and public policy analyst who has been featured regularly on CNBC, Yahoo Finance, and numerous radio and television programs. Our program will bring you guests and stories from the top of the political and business worlds. Each show includes Andy's point of view roundup and what it means for you at home. Life's complicated. Let Andy help you figure it out. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want to know about investing in emerging and frontier markets, or if you have experience in this field but still need to know more, tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham. Gavin explores news, current trends, and insights about both categories of investing. His guest experts, along with his own knowledge, will help you stay above the line when it comes to growth potential, whether in funds or equities. He will look at what to invest in and avoid. Tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Lynette Kalfani-Cox. She is the money coach. Her website is askthemoneycoach.com. Welcome back to the show, Lynette. Thanks, Jordan. Good to be here. Another area we want to talk about is debt collection. Uh, people are really being hounded by debt collectors uh, these days. What are the rights that people have and what are some of the abuses and how can you kind of protect yourself if you're being hounded by debt collectors? Well, you're right that unfortunately a huge number of Americans, tens of millions, are being hounded and mercilessly pursued by debt collectors. Uh, Some of them, of course, are in fact breaking the law. They're violating the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act which gives consumers uh, 10 areas of protection that essentially should protect you from uh, abuses of all different kinds. So, for example, debt collectors aren't allowed to call you uh, before uh, 8 a.m. in the morning or after 9 p.m. They shouldn't uh, sort of use the telephone as an instrument of harassment and mercilessly call you repeatedly uh, they shouldn't call you at your job if you tell them that you're not allowed to get calls from, from them there. 
Uh, they're not supposed to talk to other people about your debts to try to shame you into uh, paying up. And so unfortunately, and they're certainly not supposed to try to intimidate you or threaten you with, um, you know, crazy things like jail or. Um, but, but people are doing these things all the time is what you're saying, right? Ex- ex- exactly. So, so what do you say? You can't do this according to the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act? I mean, how do you get these people to follow the law? Right. Well, essentially, you have to write a cease and desist letter, and um, it's your way to push back against any kind of abusive or unfair practices. Or frankly, even if you just don't want to deal with the debt collector and you're not prepared to, because some people may dispute a debt. They may say, I don't think this is a valid debt, in which case you could uh, write a letter requesting that your uh, alleged debt be validated or verified. Um, What what are the statute of limitations on debt? How long, say on a credit card debt, uh, before it uh, expires and you really do not owe it anymore? Okay, so every state has a different uh, number of years that pertains to your statute of limitations. So it's not a an easy thing to say because you know it varies. But on the if you had to, if I had to generalize, the shortest number of years is usually about three years. Uh, the longest is about ten years. Uh, most states have about a seven year statute of limitations, and um, after that, in essence a debt collector doesn't have the legal right to pursue you in court and to sort of get a judgment against you and to make you pay up. But my uh, understanding is if you actually do, you say you don't owe it after seven years, but actually you do make a payment, that in effect reactivates the debt and starts the seven-year clock all over again. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. So unfortunately, a lot of consumers do that. They have these bills, and I call these, you know, these kind of uh debt collectors, sort of zombie debt collectors, because they like come back from the grave, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they have these, uh, there's agencies out there where they know that this debt is 10, 15, 20 years old, and that it most certainly has uh, passed the statute of limitations and the creditor cannot seek any legal action against the consumer. But they'll use threats and fear and intimidation and harassment and just badger people sometime or, or frighten them into paying. And so um, one of the things that I actually have on my site uh, is a, a, a chart, and it shows the statute of limitations on different debts state by state Correct. Uh, for things like for, for those things like you mentioned, you know, the credit card debts, for example, which is kind of one of the most common. Uh, and you also have to know, frankly, the statute of limitations for your state or the state where the creditor is based, because sometimes that that even dictates um, some of the some of the decision-making that goes on and sort of how long a statute of limitations uh, before it runs its course and it's it's expired. Yes. Now, you've done a book called Perfect Credit, Seven Steps to a Great Credit Rating. We can't go into all of it, but what what are some of the most common things that people mistake as far as how it's affecting their credit rating, either positively or negatively? I think a lot of people aren't aware of the impact that inquiries have on their credit rating, specifically hard inquiries. So there are two types of inquiries. A hard inquiry is when you as a consumer seek credit or a loan and you apply for something, a credit card, a student loan, uh, a mortgage, an auto loan, et cetera. That's a hard inquiry that gets generated. And that hard inquiry stays on your credit report for two years. 
it counts against you for the purposes of your FICO credit score for one year. And uh, depending on whose statistics you believe, <laughs> um, FICO certainly says that a and FICO meaning uh, Fair Isaac Corporation, the company that does credit scoring uh, for tens of millions of Americans, they say that um, you know a, a typical inquiry might ding somebody's credit score by you know five points or so, maybe ten points. Um, other uh, experts and other research has shown that a single inquiry can can drop someone's credit credit score by as much as thirty or maybe even thirty five points. Uh, it, regardless, uh, what's important to know is that according to, to Fair Isaac, your credit score is determined by, you know, five different areas. It has five primary components, one of which 10% of it is determined by inquiries. So, you know, you don't want to be out there credit shopping just for the sake of, you know, opening new accounts or getting 10% off. When you're at some department store and the nice lady behind the counter asks you, you know, do you want to save, you know, 10 bucks off of your $100 purchase, especially not if you're, you know, practically in the market for a mortgage. And now you just got an inquiry on your credit report. And so that inquiry uh, dinged you and made your score drop, say, 10 or 20 points. And, and that's if you do a bunch, if you go into a mall and do a bunch of stores at once, it really hurt your credit score one after another. It, it, or if you're shopping for a car. And you go from one car dealer to another, apply each time, that's going to hurt your credit score pretty badly. Right. Now, there are some areas like FICO definitely says, and others, because there's a Vantage score, um, you know, there are other credit scores in addition to the FICO score. But long story short, if you do some credit shopping in, in bunches, like if you're shopping around for a mortgage, you know, they don't want you to be penalized just for, for, for looking around to get the best deal. So if you say, um, have a, a loan application or your mortgage hunting and bank A runs your credit this week and bank B runs it next week, that will be counted as one inquiry because the thinking they're thinking you're not going to get two mortgages, you know, simultaneously. Yeah. So, so, you know, it's best to bunch those types of uh, inquiries together, but just let, just let me put a bow around the whole inquiries thing. Soft inquiries are just fine. And I encourage people to look at their credit uh, reports regularly. I'm a fan, actually, of credit monitoring. I know a lot of financial experts disagree with me on this point. I'm certainly in the minority. But personally, again, having written this book, Perfect Credit, um, having you know coached countless people who've uh, improved their credit, being cognizant of what your own actions do and how your activities impact your credit score and your credit rating really does have a big impact on behaviors. So for me, the credit monitoring, that is looking at your credit regularly, monitoring your credit and seeing what your own activities, uh, how that impacts your scores, it's an eye-opener for most people. So they say, oh my gosh, if I charged an extra $1,000 this month or last month on my credit cards, I saw how my score went down. Or, oh, wow, I paid on time for six months and I see the boost that happened in my credit score. Or I missed a payment and I saw how my credit score dropped by 40 or 50 points. So I think you should. And there's some services that will let you get credit monitoring free now and you can get them. What is your favorite one for doing credit monitoring? Um, for years, I actually did do FICO's uh, credit monitoring. I paid for it. MyFICO.com, is that the one? Yes, MyFICO.com, and I, I like it a lot. Um, but there are, there, are, there are many others as well. Um, 
Credit Karma, Credit.com, um, some other services will give you free credit scores. They're not always FICO scores, and I know there's some debate about this because they're educational scores. But then there's other some banks that are giving uh, credit scores as well. So um, Capital One has a program, uh, Discover has a program, and some others. So if you want to start tracking and looking at your credit uh, rating and your credit score, and I encourage people to do that, you can certainly uh, find opportunities to do that because those soft inquiries, when you're reviewing your own credit, they don't hurt your score or your credit rating in any way. Just like if your creditors, and a lot of them do, They'll pull your credit report practically every month. <laughs> yeah, they're so, looking at you, and that's not affecting your score. It's only when you apply for credit, which is a hard inquiry, that's what's affecting your score. Correct. So most people don't kind of know that stuff. And then yeah. I guess the other, the other big thing that I'd note with regard to what impacts your credit, uh, first and foremost, of course, it's your payment track record. 35% of your FICO score is just based on how well you pay your bills. So always, I don't care if you just have to make minimum payments. I don't encourage that. I say pay more, pay off your credit cards if you can, but... But don't miss any payments. So pay everything on time. But the big thing is reduce that credit card debt. And a lot of people are mistakenly uh, under the impression that because they have a big mortgage or because they have a lot of student loans outstanding, they think, oh, these student loans are dragging down my credit score. And actually nothing could be further from the truth. Um, It's that credit card debt, which I think a lot of people don't get it. They don't understand why it is or how it is that credit card debt is the uh, most heinous form of debt when it comes to the direct correlation between your uh, credit rating and your credit score. And it really boils down to, to these quick three things. Credit card debt is revolving debt. So it's constantly changing and you as the consumer are in full control of it, unlike, say, mortgage debt or unlike installment debt, like an auto loan or a student loan. It's very, very hard for creditors to predict the way that you'll handle your credit card debt, unlike mortgage debt or installment debt. With that mortgage, if you have a a, a bank loan, they know the mortgage is due on the first, you're going to pay on the first or within the 10-day grace period, and you're going to pay whatever your payment is, $2,000 a month, and they're going to see that balance do nothing but decline, that principal balance. Ditto for your student loans, ditto for your car note. You're going to pay the X amount of payment. Well, with a, with a credit card, they don't know what you're going to pay. You might pay the minimum payment. You might pay it off in full. You might pay three times the minimums. So it's not as predictive um, for them. Additionally, you can charge more stuff. <laughs> so yeah. um, unlike the mortgage, again, could you go out and get a home equity loan? Yeah, I suppose. But on that principal balance, that balance is only going to go one way, which is down. Yeah. And so that's what makes it. Um, and plus, there's so much more frequency, which is the third factor with how you're using the credit. You're not using the mortgage loan every single month. You're not using the car note or the student loan, but you are using the credit. So they consider that more predictive and more indicative of how well you juggle your credit. That so impacts your credit score more, yes. Very yep. good. Okay, we're going we're gonna to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Lynette Calfani-Cox. She's the money coach. Her website is askthemoneycoach.com. We'll be back after this.
Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Are you an entrepreneur that wants to achieve more, not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind. With host Chris Cooper, you'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. These people are making a difference and will help give you the motivation and insight to achieve more. Be More, Achieve More can be heard live Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Lynette Calfani-Cox, The Money Coach. Her website is askthemoneycoach.com. Welcome back to the show, Lynette. Hi there, Jordan. Great to be back. Now, you've just done a new book uh, called The College Secrets Book. Tell us some of the things that people should know about in saving for college in the first place, and then once they get to college, ways they can save money in tuition and getting through college so it's not such a huge burden as it is on so many people today. Right. Well, the, the big thing to know is that college ain't cheap these days, and I think that for certainly first-generation uh students who are going into school, and even those who already went to college and are now starting to put their kids through college, they're probably going to be shocked at the uh, level of expenses they're going to find in so many areas. So not only is tuition fees, room and board very expensive, but there are a whole host of what I call kind of back-end fees, some hidden expenses, and and really kind of questionable surcharges that you can expect to pay uh, for, you know, junior or your child who's going off to try to earn that four-year degree. The sad part is that most families aren't going to find out about this until that bill arrives. So um, you have to do a lot of homework, and you have to be prepared in ways that you probably didn't expect. So what are some of those unexpected expenses? So it's literally everything from what I call sucker fees. (laughs) Like um, any, you would be, if you think that um, the airline industry, for example, or that certain banks nickel and dime you, um, (laughs) you, way do you send a kid to school? Um, There's literally everything under the sun between um, what I call exit tax, uh, graduation fees. Yes, you made it through four years of school, but uh, you know, Expect to pay a couple hundred bucks just for, quote unquote, uh, graduation fees, uh, parking fees, 
It's not cheap to have a car on school, you know, $600 to $1,000 or so for the year. Um, you know, you've got all those papers you have to do for, for school, printing out, you know, presentations, printing out a final exam, uh, term papers. They charge you to, you know, to print on, on, on school. Tuition, you mentioned, uh, people can obviously see the stated uh, sticker price for tuition. And tuition is one of those tricky areas because uh, many students will get uh, tuition discounts, which is essentially an institutional scholarship. But nevertheless, uh, tuition has been going up dramatically. And it's, you know, it varies based on public and private schools and, and all that stuff, regional uh, variations, etc. But if you see a school today that has a, you know, $20,000 tuition sticker price, you should expect to see, you know, four or 5% tuition creep in terms of inflation um, year after year. So factor that in. Can you, you know, bargain on that tuition for most people? And what do you need to be able to get a, a reduction in the tuition costs? Okay, great question. Merit-based aid can help. And again, that's if your student is generally speaking in about the top 25% or so of a student body, then he or she likely will qualify for merit-based aid. The school will give you a scholarship or grant, and that is effectively a tuition discount. And so, yeah, but, but believe it or not, some students apply to schools because they're outstanding students, they're really good and talented, and they don't even know that the school doesn't even offer merit-based aid. For example, I know a lot of families who would love nothing more than their son or daughter to go to an Ivy League school. Well, Ivy League schools don't give out any merit-based aid whatsoever. <laughs> so if, if cost is a factor to you, um, make sure that you apply to at least some schools that give out merit-based aid, but also know what's likely, given your family's economic circumstances, in terms of need-based aid. Because those same Ivy League schools, for example, they will, in fact, give out very generous need-based aid. And some families... They say, oh, we're not going to qualify for anything. We make $150,000 a year. I know we won't qualify. Well, not so. You know, um, folks at Columbia told me, for example, that um, they give aid to some families making $200,000 to as much as even in some cases $250,000 per year. So you should never assume that you won't qualify for aid. Always at least apply. Fill out that all-important form called the FAFSA, the Free Application for federal student aid, toss your hat in the game at least to, to, you know, try to get it. But then know about all the other stuff that your kid is actually going to do on campus. Um, one of the main points that I tried to get across in College Secrets is that campuses do a really good job of selling you on the opportunities, the benefits, the extracurricular pursuits that you can um, go after. They, they show you what a great life your kid could have. And again, my daughter is in senior year of high school, so she's about to go to college next year. And we've visited so many campuses, I can't even talk about it. But what they don't talk about is the exchange that has to happen, the money that it costs, the price tag for your child to partake in all of these glorious expenses. You want your kid to join um, a fraternity or a sorority? Great. They would love for you to take part in Greek life. But they don't tell you that it costs about $1,000 to $4,000 a year to do that. So how much should you budget in addition to tuition and room and board? All these fees adding up, roughly what should people budget when they have a kid going into college as a percentage of that, you know, so they're realistic in expecting all these things to hit them? Um, 
I can't honestly say there's a specific percentage um, because, again, some students will want to do different things. Like my daughter, she's very keen to do study abroad. And study abroad, a lot of colleges charge you extra, not just because you're traveling, but they have their own fees. Uh, they some charge you for an internship if they get you an internship, you know, which I question mm-hmm. whether mm-hmm. or not they should be charging you matchmaker fees, essentially. <laughs> so I think that you should um, plan on or you should be aware that there are thousands of dollars in additional expenses that are typically not discussed at all up front and that these are, you know, the hidden sort of back end uh, costs associated with going to college. Um, Again, in College Secrets, what I did in this book is to try to tell people not just to pull the curtain back and to reveal what the expenses are, but literally for every single expense that I outlined in the book, I tell people, here's here are the strategies to either reduce or eliminate entirely these costs. So I'm, I'm hoping that people will use the and just kind of use it as a blue book <laughs> and see like, okay, here's expense, here's books. How can they uh, get a copy of your book? Is it uh, at um, your website or Amazon? How can they do it? Yeah, certainly it'll be available through uh, all the bookstores, you know, traditional channels like Amazon, uh, local bookstores, and of course through our, through our site as well, through askthemoneycoach.com. Very good. How should people make the decision of going high-end Ivy League prestigious schools versus more in-state that might be lower? I mean, the, the common view is the prestige and, you know, it's going to be payoff in the long run, so it's worth it to go into a lot of debt. Although you see a lot of people going into huge amounts of debt and maybe it doesn't pay off them. How should people make that kind of trade-off? I think the question about how you find or select the best college is probably one of the most relevant questions that students and parents should ask themselves before letting a child fall in love with a school and then trying to figure out later, okay, how are we going to pay for this pricey institution? In a nutshell, what I suggest is that students try to find the best fit college for them. And by best fit, I mean the best academic fit, the best social fit, and the best financial fit. So um, to me, there has to be a two-way love fest. You shouldn't just have a kid who goes, oh, Stanford or bust, or I only want to go to Yale or Princeton or whatever. Um, if you're talking about some of these elite schools, they might love that school, but does the school love them back? <laughs> and really the only way to know whether the school is a, is a sort of a perfect fit and a match for you on all those levels, academically, socially, and financially is to uh, see where you fit into the, academic uh, strata to do a visit. Some parents might not be able to make a um, in-person visit, but you can certainly do, there's even online visits. There's virtual tours you can take, et cetera. When you apply, if they want you, obviously they'll accept you. And then the question is what kind of a financial aid package do they give you and where do they slot you in? Are they dropping you into their honors program? Do they see you as a, a, um, you know, a, a, a talent that they want um, to fit in on the, uh, some academic team or some performance theater arts program, et cetera, because the true test of how much a school wants you back is, and I think can be measured in dollars and cents. So many families go into debt unnecessarily. I personally did it when I went to graduate school at USC, University of Southern California, um, and I write about this in College Secrets, 
I don't regret for a moment the degree that I got or the education that I got, which was a, a fantastic one. I do regret the price tag because when I graduated, which was, ooh, I don't want to say, 1993 <laughs> from uh, USC, um, it was pricey back then and it's even pricier now. And USC is one of the schools on my daughter's uh, a target school on her list. And it's about 60, almost $65,000 uh, all in. Before all the fees and all the extras you just talked about as well. So it could add that, up to well more than that. Yeah, that, that's, that's correct. So yeah. I think that um, what I would say is I would really discourage families from going into an excessive amount of debt, especially to look at it based on what is your child going to major in or likely to major in? What kind of career will he or she have? And what is their expected first year salary? It's hard for them if they're 17 to kind of know these things in many cases. Yeah, exactly. And you're, and you're absolutely right. And, you know, so many students are going to go in undeclared. Some who go in with a major, a chosen uh, major in mind, will nonetheless change that major. Right. So, and, you know, we're putting a lot of pressure on the backs of these young folks when, you know, we know realistically that most people are going to have um, three careers, so to speak, in their lifetime. Many people will go through many jobs. So, I, I don't think that a 17 or 18 year old needs to have it all figured out. Yeah, <laughs> uh, some, it's hard because there is this pressure on them indeed. Yes. Right. Some young people are very targeted and focused and they really do have a sense for what they want to do. I have a, a, a young uh, uh, girl who I'm mentoring. Her family is, is close to my family. She's first generation. Um, her family is from El Salvador and uh, such a bright girl and a very sweet and a good and an excellent student. Um, and she's very focused. She knows she wants to be a psychology major. She knows she wants to help people. And she, she, she's very um, passionate about uh, the area that she wants to study. Um, but other people don't know. I certainly went into college at the University of California, Irvine, undergrad, and I was undeclared. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, you never know. Uh, by the time I did get around to declaring a major my sophomore year, I uh, declared English as a major and it was only because I took a journalism class and I absolutely loved it and said, oh, this is it for me. Sign me up. I want to be a journalism major. And then I found out, oh, wait, UC Irvine didn't even have a journalism school. So I, <laughs> I did the closest thing. And then I went on and got a master's degree in journalism. But the, the thing was, when I you know, think back on it, my whole life, elementary, middle school or what we call junior high back then in high school, I always got A's in English. I always had all these teachers who told me, oh, you're a great writer. And indeed, th- that's what I ended up doing most of my life is using my, my writing skills. And, and, you know, College Secrets, it's the 12th book um, that I've written. And it's not College Secrets. It's actually a series, Jordan, I should mention. The flagship, the flagship book is College Secrets, How to um, Save Money, Cut College Costs, and Graduate Debt-Free. But the companion book in the series is called College Secrets for Teens, Money-Saving Ideas for the Pre-College Years. And that book for teens is really about picking the right college and about how you know that this is the best fit for you. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Lynette Calfani-Cox, The Money Coach. Her website is askthemoneycoach.com. We'll be back after this. Does your business, like many, face obstacles to becoming successful? 
Would you love to have an open forum of entrepreneurial ideas and best practices brought to you each week? Tune in for The Second Stage with hosts Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. We'll spotlight entrepreneurs and growing companies that are creating a vibrant economic base, as well as addressing some of the obstacles that could be standing in the way of your success. Listen Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you feeling slammed and suckered in today's stock market? If so, then you need to tune in to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Jordan Kimmel will train you in what you can do to beat up the big boys on Wall Street, as well as share his secrets to success so that you can buy and sell like a profit-pumping pro. Grab the bull market by the horns and listen to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line of business talk, Voice America Business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Lynette Kalfani-Cox, The Money Coach. Her website is askthemoneycoach.com. We're just talking about a bunch of different areas of personal finance. And I, one area you talk about a lot, Lynette, is women and money. Now, things have progressed a lot. Women are making much more. They're uh, much more highly educated. They're in positions of power. Uh, today, what are some of the things that are the misconceptions that a lot of women have about dealing with money and investing it and earning it and so on? Well, it's certainly the case that a lot more women are earning uh, more than their male counterparts. As a matter of fact, about 44% of all females in America are now the, the main breadwinners in their households, uh, according to this a new uh, 2014 study from Prudential. So one thing that I think, though, that a lot of women, despite their earning power, uh, remain um, mired in is uh, they have this sort of misconception about their own abilities or their ability to effectively manage money in the long run. So, um, for example, when it came to uh, doing everyday juggling of, of, of household bills and managing debts, you know, like the credit card payments and the mortgage, et cetera, uh, about a third of the women in that prudential study gave themselves an A. But when it came to longer term things like investing for the future, only 7% of women gave themselves an A. So I think that, unfortunately, it remains the case that a lot of women have either abdicated financial responsibility, or they just feel like that is someone else's job. It's daddy's job. It's sugar daddy's job. (laughs) It's uh, my hubby's job. It's my financial advisor, my broker's job. And personally, I'd like to see women take a lot more active role, not just in managing their family's finances, but in other areas of long-term financial planning. Is it something they're just not interested in or they don't feel they're competent in? Why are they not, again, if they're making all this money, why are they not interested in or or active in investments and long-term kind of financial decisions? Um, Two things, I think, hold women back from being more actively engaged in long-term financial planning. One is a lack of knowledge. Second is a lack of confidence. And the two go hand in hand. Um, When you're prepared for something, you naturally feel a lot more confident about handling that task. 
So we were talking about college earlier, for example. I certainly remember back to my college days when I actually studied <laughs> and read the textbook and reviewed my notes and went to all the class lectures, et cetera. I felt a lot more prepared. So then I would walk into class confident and get the A. Well, by the same token, women who haven't done their homework, so to speak, in terms of understanding different investment products, knowing what an annuity is, knowing what a mutual fund is, knowing the difference between a stock and a bond, um, they feel less confident about those areas of investing. If you say to somebody, okay, you know, can you tell me the difference between, um, you know, disability insurance and uh, life insurance and what's the two, what purposes do they serve? You know, really, somebody should just be able to kind of rattle that off and say, oh, okay, well, the disability insurance is going to cover my income stream if something happens to me and I have to stop working. You know, if I have an accident or maybe if I go out from, you know, the job while I'm pregnant, uh, that kind of thing. And life insurance, well, you know, if I pass away, unfortunately, this is going to be some money to, you know, pass along to my loved ones, protect them in the event something happens to me. So, but, but, and it's just, you know, sort of conversationally, I, I, I said it to you and to your audience but you could have the same conversation and say, what's the difference between a stock and a bond? And then you'd probably find a lot of um, um, <laughs> hemming and hawing or. They're not learning it in college for the most part or high school. Even though there are financial literacy courses, a lot of it hasn't really sunk in, you're saying. It hasn't. And frankly, you know, we've done an awful job by and large in this company in terms of financial literacy and education. I'd like to see it be mandatory at the elementary school level. Um, certainly some states and in high school in, in, in New Jersey uh, is the case. My daughter, I was so glad that she was uh, required to take a financial literacy class and they have a financial literacy component to the curriculum. But we shouldn't start when they're in high school. We should start in elementary school, if you ask me. As soon as a kid starts learning how to count and ask you for those coins, <laughs> that's the time to start. And But even beyond that, you know, people have to, of course, take responsibility for themselves. If you didn't learn it as a child, you can as an adult. And part of it is the industry's role to play as well, because there's not a lot of trust, unfortunately, for, a, a, for Wall Street and for a lot of the financial services industry. It's a, it's a big issue. It's something that needs to be uh, addressed because the practitioners, the professionals, there's obviously a, a ton of good ones out there, but they have a role to play in helping to educate the public uh, and women especially who are increasingly breadwinners in their families. So what happens to women who have not really been involved in finances very much when they get divorced or widowed or something dramatic like that and they're not really very knowledgeable about these things? Are they subject to scams or what kind of things happen to women in that circumstance? Well, women who haven't been adequately prepared to take the reins financially often flounder in more ways than one. Um, you, you probably know also, Jordan, that uh, I'm a money expert for AARP as well. And one of the, um, you know, sort of shocking, I think, statistics for a lot of people to learn is that the average widow in this country is about 57. And so... Um, Much earlier than people think, yeah. Yeah. And so if you've, even death aside, if, if you, you know, face the loss of a partner um, through divorce, for example... Um, you will probably be called upon to be more financially responsible and independent than many women had, had previously been, certainly than previous generations had been, but even now. So I just try to get women to not abdicate responsibility. I think that it's a, it's a good thing for uh, couples to really talk through their finances to decide, should we have joint and separate accounts? Frankly, I like to see people have both 
um, because the separate accounts helps you to maintain a little bit of independence and autonomy and to learn just how to manage money on your own without having to ask for permission or, or sort of check in on every single small purchase. And the yeah. joint account can help with managing the household bills. Very good. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. There's a lot more at Lynette's uh, website, which is askthemoneycoach.com. My guest has been Lynette Calfani-Cox, The Money Coach. Uh, There's a lot of things to learn about these areas, and she's got a lot of good resources that can help you. So thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show. My pleasure. And we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.